How much influence do you have in your home? Do your kids listen to you? Does your wife respect you? Do your neighbors know you to be an upstanding man? Do your coworkers and your CEO or your manager recognize you as competent in your field? Now, think about the possibility of increasing your influence in your family, work, and local area. Would you do it? What comes to your mind when I say that? Do you think that you could do it? Or here's actually a better question. Do you think that you could increase your influence without lording it over others or seeking it inappropriately or sinfully? Another name for influence is dominion. And another name for lording it over others is domination or domineering. Today, we're talking about how J.R.R. Tolkien's most mysterious character in probably all of his books, his whole legendarium, holds the key to establishing dominion and how you can increase your influence as a man and a father and a worker without domineering. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and their churches need. My name is Joel Sedeckes, and I'm here to help you, the Christian layman, to build a legacy so that you and your kids and your wife will be able to confidently articulate biblical truth, answer the world's questions, and see Jesus change lives as you share your faith. So how can you increase your influence in your home, work, and local area in a way that makes other people's lives better? The word dominion does sometimes get a bad rap. It makes people think of domination or domineering. But domination means overpowering and bending things and people to fit your will. Dominion, on the other hand, means overseeing the people and things under your care as they're meant to be, according to God's design. It's a good thing. When you understand this difference, you'll be that much closer to increasing your influence in a way that improves the situations of others. This is a Christ-like goal and definitely part of the legacy that you'll want to pass on to your own children. Today, we're joined by C.R. Wiley. C.R., or Chris, has written extensively about Tom Bombadil, and he's actually just authored a book called In the House of Tom Bombadil. In it, he unpacks who he thinks Tom Bombadil really is and why Tolkien included him in his stories. But also, he talks about how Tom Bombadil can help us to understand the nature of the world and how to increase our influence in it and how, how to be more joyful and have fun doing all of this. So if you've ever looked around at the areas in your life that seem disordered and wished that you could make a positive change, or if you've felt disrespected or silly, or even like you're not yet doing all the things that God wants you to do to teach and mentor and lead and build up the younger generation, this episode is for you. And if you're someone who enjoys a good story and wishes that you read more fiction, but you don't because you think that the really good lessons are all found in nonfiction. Well, this episode is for you too. Today, we're going to answer the following questions. How Tom Bombadil exercises power in a counterintuitive way. Why Tolkien's most powerful character has so much joy. What it means to have dominion without domination. How increasing your knowledge can help you increase your influence and also what kind of knowledge you need. Why having dominion like Tom Bombadil starts with studying your family members, how modern bureaucracies domineer and dominate, what is the Bombadil option, how to overcome fear when you're surrounded by chaos, what it means to be anti-fragile, and how to be more joyful and jocular in your home, and why you shouldn't really take yourself too seriously. We'll also talk about the first step that you can take to become like Tom Bombadil. If after this episode you have questions or want to discuss more about Dominion or Tom Bombadil or the Christian worldview, you should really know about our free community. This is where you can connect with over 500 others who are on the same journey as you. You'll get biblical answers to questions, information on other worldviews, and a better understanding of the tools of knowledge, truth, logic, science, and morality, and how to use them in discussion and debate. I'll tell you more about this group and how to join at the end of the show. Hi, I'm Chris Wiley. I write under the nom de plume, C.R. Wiley, and I'm a pastor. 
and I serve a church here in uh, the Pacific Northwest in the state of Washington. I live in a little town called Battleground, which is a cool name, and it's just uh, outside of Portland, Oregon, believe it or not. So this is actually a suburb of the, you know, sort of part of the greater Portland, Oregon uh, metropolitan area. Anyway, that's who I am. I, I've done some other stuff too. Maybe maybe we'll talk about that, but uh, or those things. But anyway, that's who I am. I can't help but notice, Chris, when you take the cover of your book, which I know you drew, and you place it side by side for, to your profile picture. There's a certain <laughs> level of resemblance. The beard's a little longer on Bombadil, but were you looking in a mirror when you made that uh, that, that book cover? No, no, you're not the first person to say that, but no, I didn't have my myself in mind at all. I I was just one night, in, okay. in, in fact, when I drew it, I wasn't actually uh, intending for it to become the cover of the book. I was just sort of uh, working out an idea in my mind of what I th- thought Bombadil looked like. And and if you do a, like a, a, a search, like if you Google Tom Bombadil and look at all the images, there are a lot of bad drawings. I mean, just awful, horrendous yeah. attempts uh, mm-hmm. at trying to picture this character. And, you know, Tim Hildebrand with his version, I mean, it's okay. You know, they're just... But there, there was nothing out there that I was very happy with. And so I thought, oh, let me give it a try and see if I can't, uh, you know, envision something that I could be happy with. So he was at that. That's kind of the close up. I actually drew some other things that that if people are interested, they can find that on my Instagram page. I was sort of playing around with different things. But um, that's cool. that's how it came about. And then when it came time for the cover for the book, I just threw a bunch of drawings to the publisher and said, if you want to use these, you know, in some way, fine. If not, no biggie. And they decided to do it, that, you know, hmm. use that one. You grew up in western Pennsylvania, is that right? Right. Well, yeah, I was born in Meadville, PA, which is what in, oh. in the western part of Pennsylvania, right off of I-79, and just a little south of Erie. And uh, But anyway, that's where I was born. And then uh, my father, who was an academic um was at the University of Buffalo, and then we were out of St. Louis, where my father was employed by Washington University in St. Louis. And then we ended up back in uh, Meadville when I was a teenager, uh, my sister, my mother, and me. So I spent my teen years there. I see. Meadville. Okay. So, so I was wondering about that, because I knew that you had said that you grew up in western Pennsylvania, and um, but then you said that your dad was a prof at Washington University, which is in St. Louis. So I was trying to put that together. I, I love Western Pen- Pennsylvania. I went to college at Grove City College. Oh, right. I uh, don't know if you've ever heard of that school. Oh, sure. sure. Um, I got, yeah, I got friends on the faculty and uh, my daughter's there right now. She's uh, a senior going to graduate here in May. No kidding. Yep. What's she studying? History. No way. That's awesome. Well, I bet she has some of my old profs because I actually got my bachelor's in history from Grove City. So oh, cool. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. Um, and and my, my future son-in-law, she's engaged, is also a history major there. And you know, I know education is a big thing for you. Uh, did you study philosophy? Yes, I, I, I have. Uh, so I've always had a strong inclination uh in that in that direction and and um i taught philosophy but i i uh you know was in seminary and there was a strong component in my undergraduate uh program in philosophy as well as my graduate school my first graduate school i went to to harvard divinity school to study ethics so i was there for a while and Mm. and with the uh the intention of of uh, going into you know, academe full time, and I was I was teaching uh, philosophy to undergrads, but school I was with wanted me to get my terminal degree, and and so that was what I was doing there at Harvard Divinity. But uh, I decided that wasn't for me, and I I, I left. <laughs> well, I wasn't cut out for mm-hmm. the for the academy. I had a pretty good sense of where things were trending. Uh, all the nuttiness that we see today, it's it was it was very much. Uh, you know, growing, uh, and it wasn't even in embryonic in the nineties when I was at, at Harvard, it was pretty well developed and you could kind of see where everything was going to end up. And so I thought I'd better cancel myself before they canceled me. <laughs> so, um, from what I've, from what I've heard from you, uh, the moment when you had your Tolkien conversion, 
is when Pippin drops the rock down the well inside the mines of Moria and it awakens something in the deep. And it said, and what you said was that that also awakens something in you. Now in the story, we know what was awakened was the Balrog. So my question is, are you comparing Tolkien to a Balrog? <laughs> well, I, I, you could say that I, I was comparing myself to a Balrog. <laughs> if something was awakened <laughs> okay. in me. That's so, fair. So maybe he was Pippin. You know, he was, he was the one that dropped the rock. You know, oh. he's, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, what awakened in me was a, a real uh, interest in, in the story. And, and my imagination was excited by, uh, you know, that episode in the story. And... And I, I, I acquired a taste. There was a kind of aesthetic that uh, I did. I sensed in the the story that I had never encountered before, and really haven't found anywhere else. There's something about Tolkien's aesthetic. Um, it's uh, sublime, beautiful, uh, nostalgic in a way. Um, you know, he talks about eucatastrophe and, uh, you know, his, his uh, uh, you know, essay on fairy stories. Uh, there were a number of things going on that uh, were really elemental, kind of primal, and uh, stirred me very deeply and awakened something in me of a longing for, for what I had had a little taste of. So let's talk about your love for Tolkien, Chris, sure. because um, <clears throat> it was something that was awakened when you were a kid. And then in 1977, you bought the Silmarillion. Right. Yeah. So um, I had read, you know, The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings prior to trying to tackle the Silmarillion. I just, you know, I thought one more, you know, Tolkien book. And it was obviously yeah. a lot uh, more challenging than, than those others, but I, I pushed my way through it. I was that dedicated. And, uh, so I was a Tolkien disciple before I was a disciple of Christ. <laughs> you know, I, I loved Tolkien before huh. I was a Christian. It wasn't like, you know, I was, in fact, I was kind of slow to warm up to the Chronicles of Narnia. I was like a, a big Tolkien guy. And then I became a Christian, and then I kind of like, oh, okay, Tolkien had a friend named Lewis. Yeah, right, right. So I'll read that stuff, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I got into well, Lewis. I, and, I, and they really all kind of go together for me. Um, you know, I, I didn't think uh, – there was something uh, very uh, wholesome about Tolkien, as you know, and very um, clean. Yeah. I, never, I never thought yeah. that uh, there was any um, – in congruity or, or uh, inconsistency between being a Christian and and loving Tolkien, even though at the time I didn't know anything about Tolkien's Christianity. Hmm. Okay. Well, one of the things that I think a lot of people love about Tolkien is he's easy enough for kids to understand. Not the Silmarillion, that's in its own league, but, uh, you know, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and yet there's this mysterious nature to the book it's there are parts of it that can be hard to understand i have to admit i didn't know the first thing about tom bombadil in fact i heard you i it must have been it must have been on the theology podcast i heard you mentioned that you're writing a book on tom bombadil and I had no idea who that was because I only knew Tolkien. I had read The Hobbit, but I didn't know anything about the books of uh, Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers and The Return of the King. So now I'm reading those books with my kids. But could you introduce us to the character of Tom Bombadil? Who is he? Like, what is his role in the story? What can you tell us about this character? Yeah. Well, he's a... He's a, an, an odd character and enigmatic, even for real Tolkien fans. So in the story of The Lord of the Rings, uh, that ring that Bilbo finds in The Hobbit turns out to be far more significant than he knows or realized. Turns out that it's actually the Ring of Power, which is the chief ring 
that had been forged by the Lord of the Rings, Sauron, uh, in order to dominate uh, the uh, races of Middle Earth, the elves, men, dwarves, etc. And uh, there were some rings that the elves had forged with his help that were intended to be used to help preserve the good things of the world. And then there were other rings that Sauron forged uh, on his own for, for men and dwarves. And those rings uh, were very directly connected to his ring of power and allowed him to dominate the, the people that and the persons who, who wore them. But the, the elves were able to resist uh, his attempts to dominate them. Uh, long story short, there's a great war. Uh, there are, is an alliance between men and elves, and Sauron is defeated. The ring is cut from his hand. It's lost. It's eventually found by a little char- a character who uh, becomes uh, Gollum uh, in the story of The Hobbit. But uh, he's corrupted because of the, his possession of the ring. But he loses his ring uh, in the mines or in the, in the tunnels in the Misty Mountains, and it's found by Bilbo. So Bilbo brings it home after many adventures and uh, thinks it's just a, uh, you know, a little ring that uh, helps him to avoid the Sackville Bagginses and, the, and you know, anyone else that annoys him uh, because it makes him invisible. Yeah, the annoying family members. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that it, as I said, it, belong, it was created by Saran, and it's a, it's a, a, it's a ring that cannot be um, used for good purposes. It, it eventually corrupts the wearer, no matter what the person intends who's wearing it. So it has to be destroyed. Uh, long and short, uh, Frodo, who's Bilbo's nephew, is charged with the task of carrying the ring out of the land that they live in, this place called the Shire, uh, in a quest to rid the world of the ring. And uh, very early on in The Lord of the Rings, uh, he and his three companions, uh, hobbits named Mary Pippin and Sam, uh, are pursued by black riders. These turn out to be the men who are under the dom- dominion or domination of Sauron. These are men who, who wore the rings that he had made for them. They're remarkably powerful, dangerous creatures. Um, they're the ring wraiths, uh, kind of living but not really uh, alive in any kind of wholesome sense. They're just uh, terrifying personages. And they pursue the hobbits, and in order for the hobbits to escape, they, they take refuge in some, a place called the Old Forest. The Old Forest is not a wholesome place. It's almost like jumping out of the fire pan and into the fire. And as they're going through the forest, um, they come under the spell of a malevolent willow tree that draws them down to uh, the Withywindle, which is the river that flows through the forest. And there, the tree actually captures two of the hobbits, Merry and Pippin, and uh, almost swallows them alive. He actually does swallow one of them. And then uh, Frodo and Sam s- discover what's occurred. They can't help their friends. They run around calling for help, kind of just in a, in a panic. And then there's a strange character who just appears, and his name is Tom Bombadil. And he marvelously delivers the hobbits uh, with a song. And uh, then he kind of capers off and... Uh, the hobbits follow him to his house, and then they spend a, you know, two nights and a day in Tom's house, and they meet, you know, his wife Goldberry, and uh, they learn a lot of things about about Tom, and uh, they discover in the process that uh, Tom is uh, pretty powerful himself, uh, perhaps uh, the most powerful creature in Middle Earth. So it kind of that's kind of which the, is the most counterintuitive thing. Yeah. <laughs> So here you've got, when you read the story, it's the, it's this horrifying scene. I mean, it's really like suspenseful. There's this giant willow tree that is eating these hobbits alive. Literally, he puts them to sleep. And then one of them, he entices out into the water with like this deep subliminal song they can barely hear. And then basically uses his root to push him under the water. Right. Imagine having a tree root on top of you. <laughs> and then the others, he's, he's, he's slowly swallowing them almost like, you know, serpentine-like, uh, sw- swallowing them whole. And it's like, man, what's going to happen? Someone's going to have to save them. Someone's going to have to come and burn down the tree. But how are they going to do that with the hobbits inside? You're going to have to cut it down. It, you almost get the sense it's going to have to be like 
Little Red Riding Hood with the um, the woodsman coming along to just <laughs> hack down the tree. You know, the the brave hero. And instead, here comes this this uh, this little singing, dancing, as you put it, capering little um, bearded elf-like, dwarf-like guy who's not a hobbit, not a man, and and something else. And he overcomes the tree by singing a little song. And he does it in this this calm, calming, uh, joyful, gleeful way that's not silly and yet has none of the um, the gravitas that you would expect from like a Gandalf, you know, or even an Aragorn. Right. Um, what is Tolkien getting at in the aesthetic of Tom Bombadil? What, why is this overwhelmingly powerful character so delightfully joyful? Well, I think that's it. I mean, I think what Tolkien is expressing is you could say the power of goodness uh, and goodness, genuine goodness uh, does elicit joy. Um, so Tom is uh, irrepressibly joyful. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he can't be, uh, you get the sense that, you know, there's nothing that can uh, unnerve him or something or, or even, uh, over, you know, sort of, uh, annoy him, I guess. <laughs> he just, he just has something yeah. about him that, uh, He's self-possessed in the best sense of that word um, or that term. And I think uh, it's because Tom is uh, the oldest creature in the world. That There's uh, a point in the story where Frodo is talking with Tom and asks Tom directly, who are you, Master? And, and Tom explains a little bit uh, concerning his, you know, his own history. And he, he says, I'm the, I'm the oldest. Uh, I can remember the first acorn. I can re- remember the first raindrop, and uh, so consequently, we've got this uh, this person who remembers the entire sweep of history in Middle Earth, going back to the very creation of the of the world, and um, and at the same time, he doesn't seem to be bored by by you know just just the sort of the the daily around, you know, he just, uh, finds, um, you know, I guess, uh, a reason to be joyful just by, uh, existing <laughs> and, through, yeah. you know, and so, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, I think, uh, pretty profound. If you, if you, if you think about it if for any length of time, I think the thing that sort of is off putting for many people when it comes to Tom is he does come across uh, as kind of ridiculous. He's wearing bright yellow boots <laughs> and a blue jacket. He's got this uh, face that's uh, like a bright red apple, we're told, because of his, you know, I guess, ruddy complexion and his laugh, his laughing, disp- mm-hmm. you know, his, his joyful disposition. And um, and his songs are kind of nonsensical, it seems. Um, and for those reasons, people just say, why would Tolkien, you know, uh, put this character in the story at this point when you know, uh, there's this grand, um, adventure just about to, uh, unfold in, in, but he does, there he is. And yeah. I think, I think there are good reasons, but that th- he's there. Well, one of the things that's really cool about Tom Bombadil is he, he exercises dominion without falling into domination. Could we, could we explore that a little bit? And sure. one of the things I love in your book on Tom Bombadil is that you, you explain the difference between the two concepts. Well, how, how would you explain the difference between dominion and, and domination? Well, I think, uh, domination is about control. And, uh, when you dominate, you are looking to extract some good from some thing without giving some good in return. You, it's a, it's an unequal exchange. It's a, it's a kind of robbery you could say. Uh, whereas in dominion, uh, there is a kind of communal element to it where there is an, there's an, there's a, there's obviously an enrichment that occurs for both parties. So you can think about it in that way. So, uh, domination is, uh, something that we could describe as fallen dominion. Um, you know, when we, when we hear about, you know, dominion and, you know, uh, sort of generally today, everybody thinks that dominion is just a. Uh, I guess a uh, 
synonym for domination, and it's it's not. But but because they tend people because people tend to think in those in that way when they hear in you know Genesis chapter one, uh, God granting dominion to to the man and the woman that He's made, uh, they they think of that in the worst light possible. This is like. Uh, carte blanche. We get to do anything we want to all the other creatures of the world. <laughs> we get to, you know, just destroy everything. Uh, and kind of like we see with Saran, you know, Saran or Saruman, uh, that's what people think that means. And what I think is more accurate, uh, more to the point, and I think uh, it does justice to, you know, what we see in scripture, but also I think does justice to kind of in a sense that we all have, uh, that this is the way it actually is supposed to work. Uh, what we see with Tom and Goldberry is two very powerful creatures who have, uh, you know, clearly uh, dominion in the in their home, but also beyond it. Uh, uh, and, and the dominion is exercised in such a way so as to serve uh, the genuine interests of everyone. Uh, whatever the creature happens to be that is in the dominion. Excuse me for one second. Sure. My four-year-old daughter just came in. I need to what's going on. Sorry. About sure. That. Sure. Go ahead. Hi. Why don't you go put an ice pack on it? Daddy's recording right now. So I want you to go, can you go put an ice pack on? Go ask Fia. No. Joseph, <laughs> I want you to go ask Fia to put an ice, ice pack on it. I don't want it. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Go drink a glass of water and stay off of it. Go have a seat, okay? Mm-hmm. All right, love you, sweetie. Hey, Josephine, go back out that way and close the door. Thank you. And Jojo, don't come back down, okay? You ask Fia if you need help. Love you, sweetie. A little altercation Sorry there. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, some, yeah, yeah. Big Brother did something. But I'm sure it was very unintentional, but to her, the world was ending. So. Right. Well, I know that scene. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, figured you figured you you would. Hmm. Okay. How uh, how does that translate for us? How do we better understand the nature of the world that we're living in, so that we can serve it without? domineering and dominating over it. Yeah, I think uh, one way to think about it is in a household. I mean, uh, I got I had an opportunity to watch you interact with your daughter a minute ago. And, you know, so you did a good job. And I think you were exercising dominion in that situation. You weren't thinking about it necessarily, but you told her what she should do. You you sent some instructions to another child. Uh, in other words, if there were th- some things that you were, you were doing in the interest of the entire household. It wasn't just about you. It wasn't just yeah. like Joel saying, stop bothering me, get out of here. Uh, yeah. Go back to your your little room under the stairs, like, you know, <laughs> Harry Potter or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know, clearly, uh, you know, what, what you have in your, your household is a dominion being exercised in a good way. Uh, hmm. There is a, there's just a, a simple reality. You have more power than your children. <laughs> you know, that that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And you also have the responsibility to exercise that power and your authority in a way that is genuinely enriching to those in your household. So um, if you if you have that frame of mind that the enrichment, the flourishing, as, the, as you know, Aristotelians like to, you know, Thomas like to use that term flourishing. They use it all the time. Yeah. But but if you if you if you, if, if your children, your wife, the other people who are under your authority are genuinely flourishing, then you're exercising dominion in the way that you are supposed to exercise it. If you're exercising dominion in a way that just serves your ego, uh, is harming the people around you, makes you feel powerful and then feel weak, well then yeah. you're, you're clearly dominating them and it's impoverishing them, but it's also impoverishing you in the process. How so? Well, you're not you're not actually, uh, in, you know, enjoying the kind of uh, dominion that we see Bombadil enjoying. You know, when you, whenever you look at, you know, we get little glimpses of 
of uh, Saruman. You know, we don't have any sort of real insight into Saran. He's just this malignant shade in the kind of on the edge of things. Yeah. But I can't imagine that he's a happy guy. <laughs> you know, you, the, these are, these are people, <laughs> these, these are creatures who are always worried about things getting out uh, beyond their control, right? They're afraid. Um, yeah. They're, they're full of resentment and anger and they're schemers. They're, they're always trying to find a new way to, to get people or creatures, other creatures to do what they want. And for yeah. You know, apparently no greater purpose than their own maybe need to be in charge. Man, it's interesting how you bring up fear, too, because when you think about Sauron, you think, well, for me, I think this is he induces fear in others. He, it's 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 terrifying to think of this all seeing eye watching you. And yet. He's afraid he's afraid of losing his grip he's afraid of losing his power his influence um he's afraid he'll never get the ring back and you know this is something that you've written about in the past too chris is um you you've talked about when pastors worry too much about what people think of them whether it's their session their elders the denomination the congregation whatever the people on twitter who knows that's a thumbscrew that can turn and torture them and what does that lead to? Does that lead to a desire to exercise domination instead of dominion? Yeah, I think it can. I think that that kind of fear uh, compels people to do what they think they need to do to make sure they don't lose control. Um, and in a strange way, they also end up, they, they don't actually say, they don't actually speak the truth any longer. They become calculating in everything that they do and say because they're looking mm-hmm. to use um, the, the, you know, their, you know, their, their words to bring, bring about the, the outcomes that they think that they can by, you know, uh, saying things a certain way or doing things rather than just speaking the truth. Now, speaking the truth doesn't mean that you're yeah. just haphazard and uh, careless and, and calloused. But I do think that, um, you know, if if the the real reason you're being um, circumspect in your words is not because you care about the people you're talking to, but because you care about you know uh, you know losing your 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 grip on things, <laughs> you're not actually demonstrating care for someone else. You're basically just kind of serving your own interest. You're just using uh, language. You're using to do people that. as a means to an end. Right. Right. Yeah. You know. Um... One of the things I'll tell you, when I was a kid, there was something that I saw on TV that really like, it kind of threw me for a loop. And I, and I just thought of it in what you were talking about with how Bombadil exercises dominion. Okay. So it was an episode of Mr. Rogers. Do you remember Mr. Rogers oh, neighborhood? Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So in that episode, Mr. Rogers is talking about, he's talking to the kids, the kids in the audience, which was me at that time. And he was saying, your parents, I forget exactly how we put it. Your parents are in charge of you, but they don't own you. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, I'd never thought of that. I was maybe five <laughs> or something. I never thought, my parents don't own me. Interesting. <laughs> right, right, and right. so, and, and of course that's true. And now as a dad, of course I, I recognize that. But what does it mean to have dominion without, to have mastery without ownership? Yeah, that's that's actually the 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 way um, you know Frodo and Goldberry um, explore this. So when Frodo arrives with the other hobbits at Tom's house, Tom is out of the room. They meet Goldberry, and you know Frodo is is puzzled by Tom's presence in the story as the reader is, and he asks uh, Goldberry, "Who is this guy? Who is Tom Bombadil?" And her response is, uh, you know, he is the master. And, of course, you know, Frodo thinks like you and me, and and his response to that is, do you mean this whole land and everything in it belongs to, to Tom Bombadil? And she's like, what? No, that doesn't follow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, everything belongs to themselves, but Tom is the master. And that is the thing that uh, is important to remember. Uh, mastery in the, in the sense that 
Um, you know, we have been granted as human beings mastery in our world uh, at large, but even in our worlds, our little spheres that we find ourselves in. doesn't mean that we own anything. Less, you know, least of all people uh, or other creatures. We don't really own uh, people. Uh, we're not the maker of those people. God made those people. They serve his purposes. Um, we're going to be held accountable for how we um, interact with those people because they're not ours. <laughs> they belong to God. Yeah. So now Tom doesn't get into that kind of, uh, or, or Goldberg doesn't get into that kind of discussion. But, but I think that that's what is going on underneath the surface. I think, uh, you know, I, I think that Tolkien very um, deliberately is developing, uh, you know, a, a way of thinking about mastery and dominion uh, in uh, the story, uh, in order to contrast Tom with the other, the other figures in the story that are evil. Um, you know, you could, you could kind of put them into three categories. You say there, there are the evil characters like, you know, Saran and Saruman. And then you have this, um, character, Tom Bombadil, who's just sort of like, uh, crazy sort of, uh, into his own world. <laughs> And then, yeah. and then, and then you have right. you've got good characters uh, who are, you know, having to 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 exercise judgment and act in the world in ways that sometimes require them to take a measure of control uh, in certain situations, like Gandalf, Aragorn, Galadriel. Mm-hmm. These these really great characters, but but those are also the characters who are afraid to touch the ring because they're afraid that because. They do have to exercise a, you know, some control sometimes. They might, uh, in the process of trying to use the ring, become trapped by the ring. But, but yeah. Tom, as you know, uh, is uh, completely uh, aloof and, uh, uh, I guess, inoculated against the temptation to use the ring. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to, to see his, um, his interaction with, with Frodo and just his almost frivolity towards this this incredible, terrible, evil power of the ring. Um, and, and I think part of that, it seems like part of that is rooted in the fact that he does know how things work. He knows, he knows the face of evil. He understands that evil is a corruption of the good. And it's almost like that knowledge eliminates the temptation for evil. Um, because, well, why would I want the substitute? I'll, I'll take the real thing any day. Why would I want the, the, you know, the, the cheap knockoff, version, you know, um, as opposed to the real handcrafted, like the really good thing. So bringing this down to where the rubber meets the road for us as men in our households, what knowledge of the world and how it works is needed for us? What should we be studying? What should we be students of? Like, is it, is this books? Is this relationships? How do we get that knowledge? Yeah, I think books and relationships are uh, really important, and we can learn a lot through those things. I think, though, what I what I pick up with Tom is that he's a student of creatures. So, um, you know, during that day in which he regales the you know the hobbits with all these stories, you know, when they're in his house and it's raining, they can't go anywhere because of the rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's telling them stories about the various creatures of the world. And uh, the trees and the, and the animals and, and other things. And uh, they learn that he knows a lot about even them and their families and about the Shire. Tom is a, is a, a, a very observant uh, character. And I think we as fathers and husbands need to study those in our care uh, under our authority. We have to um, keep uh, our eyes uh, open and and look to understand, you know, not just, uh, you know, uh, the general categories, you know, boy, girl, man, woman, that kind of thing. Those are important, uh, especially in our world today, <laughs> which seems to have lost yeah. sight, <laughs> right. sight, sight of the, 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 you know, the nature of those different things. Uh, but our particular people, you know, uh, so like with my children, um, I, I, uh, I, I came to see early on that these kids came pretty much prepackaged with certain characteristics. 
In other words, they weren't just like tabula rasa. They weren't just like waiting for me to, to form and shape them out of nothing. You know, from the start, they uh-huh. had kind of dispositions and sort of interests and, and so forth. And so I tried to uh, observe and work with the grain, so to speak, in, each, in the case of each child. So like my oldest son, mm-hmm. uh, he was the athlete. He had an interest. His first word was ball. <laughs> he had an interest in, in, in playing baseball and basketball and uh, just about anything you could do with a ball from, you know, when he was a little guy, he could barely walk. It was just like he would hold on to the ball in his crib. You know, he'd want to play catch with me out of the crib, <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of thing. Cool. My second son, he didn't have any, any interest in athletics. Um, he was more interested in building things. He's, so today he's a, he's a welder and he's a furniture builder and, and uh, works for, uh, you know, a pretty large manufacturing company that makes commercial buildings. And so he's a steel worker. But, um, you know, pretty early on, I realized, OK, if, if I try to if I try to pursue uh, the same activities with him as I pursue with my oldest son, it's just going to frustrate both of us. <laughs> you know, it just didn't have that interest. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then my daughter had her own set of interests. So I, I tried to study the, the kids and keep, uh, uh, you know, my eyes open and kind of learn where their, uh, how they, you know, kind of learn what their interests were and, and what their, how the grain uh, was sort of, uh, how the grain uh, worked in each of them, meaning the grain like a grain like in, a piece of wood, you know, it's just, it's what you get and you work with the grain. You don't try to work against it. So I think that, you know, the same thing with my wife, my wife's a particular kind of person. She's obviously my wife. She's, uh, very, uh, feminine, but at the same time, she has her own particular interests and her own particular gifts. And so I try to work with those. What happens when you're working with wood? What happens if you go against the grain? Well, things split. Uh, they don't, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to work against the grain because you're trying to do something that the grain or the, the wood isn't sort of predisposed to do. Um, you know, you can, you can force it. You know, you know one of the things that we do in, with modern construction techniques is that we just kind of grind everything down to dust and then form it into whatever shape we like. That's what, you know, medium density fiberboard right. is, you know, it's, it's just that, you know. Um, we, we take out all of the sort of the intrinsic characteristics of the wood that, uh, it's made out of and just turn it into particles and form it into whatever shape we want. And that's really the kind of, I think that's the way, um, bureaucracies in general work today, uh, particularly, uh, you know, government bureaucracies, they, they have absolutely no capacity for working with the grain. Everything's supposed to do what it's told. That's man, that's a good insight because if you think about, you know, the wood, once you grind it down, each of those individual grains can be manipulated however you want. And some will be lost and it doesn't really matter as long as the finished product is made up of some of these different grains. And and that's what bureaucracies and godless governments do, isn't it? When they when they try to break down the, the structures of society that God's put in place, the household, yeah. you know, for example. And every every individual now becomes a individual grain, something to be molded into the shape of the image of whatever the, the the bureaucrat wants. Yeah. I mean, I think that you I see think, that. Oh yeah. Yeah. The analogy is, is pretty, uh, accurate all the way down. I think governments, mm. uh, really like working with individuals because individuals are largely helpless, um, and subject to the controls that the governments, uh, that governments have for getting things done, manipulating things, you know, uh, you know, So, you know, if we think about, if we go back to construction and and sort of techniques that maybe were employed in the past, um, often what you'll, what you'll see is a very idiosyncratic approach to building, um, that was, uh, that characterized things before the advent of power tools. When everything had to be sawn by hand or nailed directly, you know, by hand or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, or even drilled by hand, uh, you know, there was a, a tendency to say, okay, what does this particular piece of wood want to do? Let's work with that. Let's not try to force it because I'll spend all day sawing if I try to, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, yeah, I need, I need yeah. to work with this thing. And, uh, to, today, like you noted, uh, when we can break everything down to, you know, the smallest components then, and then, you know, 
through heat, pressure, glue, whatever, create, you know, perfectly square or squared uh, slabs of material. By the way, those slabs of material are really easy to cut and really easy to form and shape. So if you get a router and you work with medium density fiberboard, yeah, there's a lot of dust that it kicks up, but it's as smooth as butter. There's very little resistance. And that's exactly what a government wants is very little resistance. Uh, as right. the, you know, the, right. we, we've seen with the Canadian truckers, there was a little bit of resistance there. And so they just pulverized them. Yeah, man. And, but then, you know, think about, um, what kind of furniture you'd rather have. Right. I used to have this desk and I, I still sometimes kick myself for getting rid of it, but it didn't fit in this new office. But man, Chris, it was this beautiful hundred year old desk, just, you know, handcrafted real wood, um, just absolutely beautiful. And now in my office, I've got these things that look like wood. I'm sure that they're wood at some level, but there's like a veneer and it's who knows even what it's made out of. It feels like plastic when you tap on it. And it's like these things will last, I don't know, a couple of years. And I don't have to get new ones. Yeah, you're not going to see somebody on a television show 100 years from now saying, hey, look at this great find. I found this desk <laughs> that that was, uh, you know, yeah. so, that sold at Ikea and uh and it's made up right, of right. it's it, it's simulated wood grain surface and but beneath the surface yeah. there's nothing but medium density fiberboard isn't this great mm. <laughs> no everybody would yeah. say like no that's garbage yeah. <laughs> there's an article that you wrote a few years back called the bombadil option what is the bombadil option and um, what what can we learn from this character of tom bombadil yeah, well, it was originally written for Front Porch Republic, which is a different, uh, you know, online publication and a good one. It was obviously inspired by by Rod Dreher's uh, Benedict Option. So, you know, the Benedict Option, uh, what Rod was up to uh, is, you know, he he was taking uh, a, a kind of throwaway line from Alistair McIntyre uh, in his book After Virtue. At the very end of that book, McIntyre notes that we've come to a, a point in, in, the, in the history of Western, Western civilization where things are pretty much, uh, you know, entering into a new, new barbarism. And we need to have yeah. uh, an institution or institutions that uh, will help us uh, weather this uh, dark period in, our, in our, our history. And so in the course of uh, his description of what, what we need, he says, we need a new Benedict. And so that was the basis mm. for the Benedict option that Rod uh, writes about. Anyway, so hearing that, I, I thought, I, I think that there's a, another uh, component to this. You know, when Rod is talking about what needs to happen, he's referring, you know, by and large to the church. You know, what uh, kind of uh, institution uh, the church needs to be or what maybe the church can do in the way of founding some institution or institutions to help us kind of weather the storm. I thought, well, you know, there is an institution that we all can have, you know, sort of participate in in our, in our own lives. And that's our whole, our households. And uh, if we had, you know, the right outlook, we could even see our houses uh, kind of serving the same purpose as, you know, these monasteries served in, in the past. And, and so I, I just got thinking about that, and I thought, well, you know, here you have Tom Bombadil. You know, that Tom is in a world that's fallen apart. He's he lives right between the old forest and the Barrow Downs. Now the Barrow Downs are where the Barrow Whites live, who are, you know, pretty scary ghosts. <laughs> they yeah, it's a yeah. it's a so you got a haunted graveyard, and you got uh, a kind of a a wild uh, uh, and unruly forest, and there's Tom's house full of light and joy and, and singing and it's a great place. So I, I was reflecting yeah. on, on how our houses can be like that. By the way, Rod, Rod Dreher, who wrote the Benedict option, you know, I know him and he, he, uh, we actually had a talk about this. He said, I love that, uh, Bombadil option thing you did. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of fun. But, um, so that was the, that was the inspiration for that. The Bombadil option is, uh, you know, establishing a dwelling in which uh, the members of that dwelling, a household, uh, are a source of uh, uh, help and uh, delight to each other in that house. 
So, mm. you know, I, as I, I got into in that, um, in that little article, I, I described, you know, the delight that Tom enjoyed in the presence of Goldberry. He obviously loves her and uh, delights yeah. in, in, in being with her. And I get the sense that the feeling is mutual. <laughs> and so, so you've got this, this household, <laughs> Seems that, to be. Yeah, this household, that's a, that's a really great place to be. And I think that's really what yeah. we all, we all kind of long for. And so I think, you know, pursuing that uh, is something that we all can aspire to do. And, you know, it's, hmm. it's where we live. It's the people that we're living with. Now our households, uh, there's a lot more that go that, that, that to them than I think that, uh, many modern people uh, tend to to appreciate, and and some of the things that I write about in my books, Man of the House and Household of the War for the Cosmos, are intended to explore those dimensions of our households that uh, a lot of folks uh, are kind of uh, blind to, or they suffer from a kind of cultural amnesia about. And I was yeah. just trying to bring those things back to at least uh, you know our minds so that we can consider them and, and perhaps revitalize or revive some of the practices of our ancestors in ways that are appropriate to our time. Yeah. Recontextualizing them for where we're living now. We're not on the edge of a haunted graveyard, but you know, in culturally <laughs> right. in many ways we kind of are actually, right, right. What, what does it mean for us? If we're going to take the Bombadil option, how do we overcome the fear of the, the haunted graveyard and the chaotic forest in between which we find ourselves. There's a lot of reasons in our flesh to be afraid today. How do we take the Bombadil option and have joy instead of fear? Yeah, I think in Tom's case, he knows things. And, and you know, uh, I think that's true that, um, that when you master certain skills, um, there there is a kind of competence and gravitas that follows that makes it possible for you to uh, assess pretty quickly uh, the, say the, the, you know, the threats and the opportunities in any given situation. So um, I think if you are a person who has a range of competencies, if you can work with people, work with tools, have a sense of sort of how the financial world works. And in other words, these, these, these skills that are, are functional and there is a kind of carryover. There, there, there tends to be a kind of synergy that occurs between them. Um, if the, the, the more, uh, you have mastery over these, uh, sort of, uh, spheres of life, I think the, the, the less likely you are to kind of be subject to the manipulations of say, you know, employers or even, um, you know, social media, what have you. Um, you, you'll, you'll be able to, you'll be able to, to, to fall back upon your own resources and they won't be meager. And I'm not talking about like mm. a lot of money in the bank. I'm just talking about a, kind of a wealth of knowledge. And, and also, uh, you know, if over time, if you, if you're a virtuous person, you're going to have, uh, people who, um, you've had, um, interactions with that have been, those interactions have been positive and they're going to be, you're going to have goodwill. So the combination of, uh, I think, mastery over certain uh, skills and then uh, goodwill, uh, those things can go a long way toward helping you in, you know, times when you're facing, uh, you know, threats that uh, Mm. people who don't have those resources uh, find, uh, you know, that they, you know, they find that they have to, in some sense, capitulate and do what they're told. Yeah. How does that connect with the idea that you've talked about before about being anti-fragile? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, anti-fragility, um, I familiar with Nassim Nicholas Taleb and his, uh, anti-fragile, uh, sort of the book anti-fragile. A little bit, but our, my listeners might not be. So what he, what he describes is basically there are there are essentially three kinds of, I guess, um, uh, conditions that you can find yourself in. One is fragile. Uh, uh, you know, when, when you're fragile, um, you're obviously easily broken. And then you have uh, uh, the, the resilient or, or, or uh, 
I, I don't know if that's the term he uses, but basically the idea is that um, you can take a lot of punishment. Um, you, it wears you down over time, but you, you, can, you can take a lot. But then anti-fragility is actually, uh, takes, it to, takes, I guess, resilience to another level. And the more um, stress that you face, the stronger you get. Um, so you, yeah. you see, uh, now, anything can go too far. Um, you know, you can be overwhelmed and be overcome in such, in such a way that your, your inner resources, your ability to heal and learn, uh, can't keep up with the, with the, with the assault or the pressure. But in the course of your life, if you, if you face a number of challenges and you overcome them, then with each, uh, thing that you've overcome, you're that much more capable for, you know, when it comes to handling other things. This is something that I actually, I wanted to ask you about. I was, I've been curious about. So you have an article called Bombadil at Home. In that, there's a quote, and you're pretty direct, Chris. You say, fathers, when it comes to dominion in your houses, be like Bombadil. That's pretty straightforward. And, and, you know, so in the story you're just telling, I'm thinking, okay, you know, the knowledge leads to the confidence, leads to the lack of fear. What about, so as dads, how can we be more happy, more joyful, more Bombadil-like in our homes? Yeah, I think, I think there needs to be a kind of jocularity that uh, a father uh, is, uh, you know, sort of known for. I think... Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, paradoxically, you can be uh, a jocular uh, father and have the ability to project authority. So uh, Lewis actually gets into this, and this is actually something that characterized Jupiter, um, you know, the god uh, in the Roman pantheon, it would be Zeus in you know, the Greek pantheon. Um, the, the word or the name Jupiter, you know, brings the planet to mind. <laughs> but uh, another name uh, for Jupiter is Jove, J-O-V-E. And that's where we get the word jovial, you know, laughter. So, yeah. like, when a father is wrestling with his kids, uh, he's clearly, uh, you know, dominating the room. <laughs> now, he may, <laughs> let, he, he, he may let his kids push him a little bit with great with great effect right. fall over and then they just laugh and oh, he yeah. laughs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but there, there's not a moment where he feels any, you know, threat, right. you know, he, he's just having a good time. And at any given moment, he can just pick a kid up with one hand and hold him over his head and swing the kid around mm -hmm. and, and then gently put the child down, you know, as the child is laughing mm -hmm. away, you know, and he's having a good time too. I think that's the way, uh, our, 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 you know, fatherhood should be uh, uh, sort of understood all the time, even when you're disciplining. Hmm. You know, I when you're interacting with, you know, even when you're act interacting with your wife. How? Well, I mean, what you, what you have is you have, uh, because you really love these people and, and you have their best interests at heart. And you know that oftentimes, particularly with kids, that they're just out of touch with reality. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what's going on. They're out of touch with reality. And you can, uh -huh. you can kind of just be, you can just kind of laugh and sort of like right. through your laughter, right. not mock, but, but no, no, right. it, it, it's more of a kind of, uh, a reality check. You know, this is not that serious little girl. This is, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I can see you're all worked up, you know, yeah. and you just, you put your hand on her head and tussle a little bit and say, you know, uh, it'll be a tomorrow, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, <laughs> now, right. no, her response at that moment is like, take me seriously, take us, you know, but right. no, I'm not going to take you seriously because there's nothing serious about this moment. You know, this is right, fun, right. <laughs> you know, and yeah. you need to learn to laugh at yourself, little girl. You know, right. you have to learn how to, to see the humor in the moment. And now uh, that needs to carry over into your own life, you know, and into the larger issues that you're, you're dealing with too. And because you have confidence that God is uh, in control and, you know, you have uh, an understand, an understanding of his, his, uh, you know, with working and, and so forth, you can, you can uh, laugh. Now it doesn't mean there aren't times to cry. I mean, think about Ecclesiastes and there's time for everything. But I think for uh, I think in terms of the characteristic 
uh, emotion uh, that we should see in our homes, it should be joy, if, if we can call mm. joy an emotion. There should be laughter. There should be, you know, lightheartedness. Uh, there should be gratitude. Um, you know, there, there'll be times for, you know, uh, some corrective words, uh, some, mm-hmm. some, you know, hard things that have to be done. But even then, there ought to be a sense kind of beneath the surface that this is a joyful household. How do you, how do you cultivate that yourself? I think that you, you know, you shouldn't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> now, there, this is a paradox. Again, I, I, I'm not talking about uh, undermining your own authority. What I mean is by taking your, not taking yourself too seriously is, is don't think that every little thing you do is the, you know, the world is sort of like kind of on the edge of sort of falling off the cliff if you don't do the right thing, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, right. Right. If, if you, if you have a sense that, um, uh, you know, your, your rule is to, is, is to serve the, the greater good and the, and the, and the happiness understood in the best sense of that term, uh, of every member, mm-hmm. then you can have that kind of joyful disposition that's jovial in the sense that Jupiter was jovial. There's this marvelous scene in the Aeneid where, you know, Aeneas is the son of Venus, for goodness sake. Can you imagine having Venus as your mother? <laughs> and she's, con- she's concerned for her boy. You know, uh, he's on the bad, he's, right. on, he's on the wrong side of some people and some, and some goddesses and stuff. Uh-huh. And they're out to get him. And she's concerned that he, that he, you know, make it in the world. And she goes to her father, Jupiter, Jove, and uh, she, she, you know, asks him to, to bless her son, who is obviously his grandson. <laughs> and, and this scene, this, this image that of his, his um, sort of, uh, this is his love and his regard and his joy that he uh, has in his daughter, Venus, is really remarkable. It just hmm. it, it almost brings it brings tears to your to your eyes. The way uh, Virgil describes this jovial fatherly uh, interaction, he kind of smiles, and, and it's like his faith is like the sun, and hmm. uh, and he just kind of takes you know and tussles uh, Venus's head, little girl. He'll be fine. <laughs> I have got a plan for that boy. <laughs> and then she says, he's going to be a great king. He's going to be a great ruler, the father of a great people. And then she's consoled, you know, that her, mm. that her son has her father's favor. It reminds me of Romans eight twenty eight. All th- God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Of course, the difference being that our God is real and, and, right. uh, uh, Virgil's Jove is is uh, fictional, or you know, um, at, at the very least rooted in uh, sure in not God, but but there, there's such a there's such a deep truth there. I think he captures something unwittingly about the nature of the true Father. Yes. Okay. And so this could be a Romans one situation, right? Where the God's eternal power and divine nature are shining through the things that have been made mm-hmm. uh, through literature. Right. No, no less. Um, and, you know, when you started talking, Chris, when you started uh, getting into jocularity, one of the things I was curious about is, man, how does this tie in with gravitas? Oh, yeah. You've talked a lot about gravitas in your books. And I'm thinking, man, gravitas, jocularity, those don't seem to go together. <laughs> but but I can see it. I can see it. If you yeah. if you maintain a sort of dignified, a dignified jocularity, not a not a, a clownish gesturally right uh where you're as you said you're undermining your authority but it's it's dignified mm-hmm. and uh, and it comes from a place of of strength and and dare i say dominion is that right oh yeah i think so i mean you're exercising dominion in the in the interest of your children and your wife you know yeah. and because you love them and you want them you want the best for them then when you exercise authority uh it's in uh the spirit this delighted spirit because you're you're wanting the best for for those under your care. All right. So, at the end of this, what what do you want our listeners to do? What what would be the the next best place to send them? Is it is it your Bombadil book? 
Yeah, I think Bombadil, I mean, if you're a lover of Tolkien and you have an interest in that enigmatic character, then um, I, I hope that, uh, you know, you can get a hold of the book and hopefully it'll be uh, worth your time. The other stuff I write, if you're interested in households, you can always go to my my author website, crwiley.com. Not that I spend any time on it. It's just basically a place where I post things every once in a blue moon, of, you know, like an interview like this or something. And, uh, yeah, uh, but that's, that's there. Well, I'm glad to have been on the show. Thanks for asking. Thank you so much, brother. And I will talk to you later. All right. Okay. Bye. bye. All right. So now, you know, Tom Bombadil exercises power in a counterintuitive way by combining jocularity with gravitas. Tolkien's most powerful character has so much joy because he understands his environment and he knows those under his care. Well. He knows how to exercise dominion in a way that helps to think, helps things to thrive as they were intended to thrive. This is what it means to have dominion without domination. You heard how increasing your knowledge can help you increase your influence, and that the first kind of knowledge that you need is knowledge of those under your care. Modern bureaucracies domineer and dominate, but the Bombadil option means doing things differently, establishing a dwelling where the members are a source of delight to one another. You heard how you can overcome fear when you're surrounded by chaos through mastering the skills that you need in order to quickly assess threats and opportunities as they arrive. This is part of what it means to be anti-fragile. Remember, we talked about that, about developing toughness through overcoming hard things. And Chris also told us how to become more joyful and jocular and that you shouldn't take yourself too seriously because Joy, jocularity, and gravitas work well together. And the first step to becoming like Tom Bombadil, get C.R. Wiley's book, In the House of Tom Bombadil. It's available from Canon Press, and the link is going to be right down there in the show notes. Now, if you want to build a worldview legacy for your family, then join the Think Squad group now. Now is the perfect time to become the worldview leader that your family and church need. All you have to do is to open up Facebook and search for Think Squad. That's T H I N K S Q U A D. Think Squad. Answer the short membership questions, and that's all it takes. Thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. Thank you to Chris Wiley, my guest, for joining me today. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedicase, and is a production of the Think Institute.